Burning Books with Eric Beck-Rubin. Hello and welcome to the Burning Books podcast where we discuss, celebrate, and explore great books, very good books, books in which there is something to appreciate or admire, as well as books that are the opposite of all those things. Here we are in the last episode of the season called To Trilogy or Not to Trilogy. To recap, so far we've talked about books by Richard Ford, Amitav Ghosh, Elena Ferrante, Pat Barker, Ford Maddox Ford, and Josip Novakovic. All books written by these authors that are parts of trilogies. And today, it'll be Roddy Doyle. If you're familiar with Roddy Doyle's work and you're thinking trilogy, you might be thinking of the three books that became the Barrytown trilogy, all three of which were books that I loved, beginning with the first scene in The Commitments where one of the rabbit children was counting the number of toilet paper squares used by the family for a class project. Right away, that book was a profusion of dialogue, jargon, atmosphere, and life, and that to me is what Roddy Doyle is. The Barrytown trilogy was great, and I look back at it really fondly. But today, we're not looking at that trilogy, but rather Doyle's second trilogy, a completely different kind of project called The Last Roundup. The first novel of that trilogy is called A Star Called Henry, and it was published in 1999. Like I just said, there was this spark in the novels of the Barrytown trilogy. Those novels were set in lower middle class Dublin, in the Rabbit family, and among their acquaintances. The spark was in the improbable courses that the lives of the characters took. It was in the author's seemingly intimate knowledge of their psychological and social conditions. The spark was in being up close and personal with this storyline that could go anywhere. Maybe part of this is the fact that the Barrytown trilogy is only a trilogy in retrospect. Doyle wrote a book about the rabbits and their friends and neighbors and acquaintances and kept writing about them, and it was like a house that just kept expanding. It didn't seem to have any grand plans. Before A Star Called Henry even begins, there's a page in this book that explains it's volume one of the last roundup. Spontaneity has been replaced by something else, responsibility. There's a sense from the very first that Doyle has set out to write an epic. A sweary epic, with lots of local color, but this is going to be an epic. Actually, more than that, it's going to be a national epic, a kind of Bible for the birth of Ireland. And just as surely as Genesis begins with, in the beginning, a star called Henry has its own origin story. And in paragraph one, we get an explanation, at least in part, of the title. We see little Henry resting on his mother's knee while his mother is staring at the sky, looking at the stars, recalling the original Henry, the one that didn't make it more than a few weeks in the world. The Henry that's sitting at her knee, then, the Henry of the novel, is a shade of the original, a lesser version. A lesser version that will be the hero of his own story, but a lesser version with a slighted inheritance. And just as the Bible occupies itself for long stretches with who begat whom, etc., this novel also begins by tracing Henry's antecedents. And what do I know about poor mother? Precious little. I know that she was Melody Nash, a beautiful name promising so much. I know that she was born in Dublin and that she lived on Bolton Street. She worked in Mitchell's Rosary Bead Factory on Marlborough Street. 
They made the beads out of cow's horns. All day, six days a week, sweating, going blind for God and Mitchell, before she walked into my father. Who was he and where did he come from? The family trees of the poor don't grow to any height. I know nothing real about my father. I don't even know if his name was real. There was never a grandma smart or a grandma, no brothers or cousins. He made his life up as he went along. Was he just a liar? No, I don't think so. He was a survivor. His stories kept him going. A poor man, he gave himself a life. He filled the hole with many lives. He was the son of a Sligo peasant who'd been eaten by his neighbors. They'd started on my father before he got away. He hopped down the boreen, the life gushing out of his stump, hurling rocks back at the hungry neighbors, and kept hopping till he reached Dublin. He was a peddler, a gambler, a whore's bully. He sat on the ditch beside my mother and invented himself. In that passage, you may have caught one of the notable qualities of Henry's father. He had one flesh and blood leg. The other was made of wood. It was a wooden leg that got his father work, bashing people on the head at the doors of Dublin's finest brothel. With the father up at night then, and the mother occupying herself with an ever-growing brood of Henry's kin, Henry is more or less on his own from day one. We sold newspapers we'd stolen. We stole back flowers we'd sold. We ate while we ran, we slept standing up. I was learning to swing my daddy's leg, the spare one he'd left behind. I had a blade sewn into the peak of my cap, and I did my own sewing. There was nothing I wouldn't do. So he's got pluck and moxie and those other 1920s words, even though we're in the 1910s, and we know because Henry's narrating that he is going to survive this childhood, and more than that, he's going to thrive. In this way, then, he's set up as a reflection of the striving nation that is raising itself around him. It's also inevitable that as far as Henry ranges, he'll be pulled back into the orbit of Republicans hoping to create a country out of this British colony. It's about right then, and one of the best things about this book, that the national dreamers who strive to create Ireland approach Henry and his ilk through the back channels of the black market and petty crime. In his mid-youth, Henry and his younger brother Victor are part of a crew that steal livestock off farms and flog the livestock on the black market. One evening, the group is approached by a couple of men who want to direct the proceeds of the theft to other ends. Here's Henry telling the tale. Men came to us when we were eating a bullock off a fire. They had beards and hard eyes, two of them, big men made bigger by their greatcoats. We were ready to run or fight. I grabbed a hold of Victor, but they made soothing noises and one of them showed us money in his hand. We were used to strange men offering us money. These men were different. They were serious looking men. They looked straight at us. They weren't interested in what was behind their backs. I stood my ground and the other stood with me. Do you love Ireland, lads? Said one of them. They got no answer. We didn't understand the question. Ireland was something in songs that drunken old men wept about as they held on to their railings at three in the morning, and we homed in to rob them. That was all. This I loved. It tells you so much of the low motives and measures that underlie the almost comically high-flown rhetoric of national purity and election. 
It's on this point that Doyle is consistently excellent through the novel, a real bright spot. And this is one of the notes on which part one of the novel draws to a close. Part two of A Star Called Henry starts on Easter Monday, 1916, the first great 20th century Irish rebellion against the British. Henry Smart, part of the force that occupies the general post office in Dublin, is at the center of the action, though he has his own personal and individual interests still at heart. We serve neither king nor kaiser. So said the message on the banner that had hung across the front of Liberty Hall, headquarters of the Irish Transport and General Workers' Union. If I'd had my way, or anyone else would have been added, instead of but Ireland. I didn't give a shite about Ireland. That's our Henry there, flippantly making a critical point. If the national struggle is not about freeing individuals from tyranny, what's it actually about? As the story strongly suggests, it's actually about replacing foreign tyranny with domestic tyranny. I couldn't really get enough of Doyle satirizing national sentiments. I mentioned this already, but I will say it again. So this second section was, for me, something that began with a lot of promise. The section unrolls as a set piece, showing the highs, the lows, the uncertainties, the bad smells, the camaraderie, the suspicion, etc., of the occupation of the post office under siege by the English. Alongside Henry, we see how his fellow rebels' loyalties to the Catholic Church and personal capitalist schemes are souring the efforts from the start. And we also see how Henry's not the only one to see through the so-called fight for national liberation. As Henry notes, when British soldiers defeat the post office bandits, not even the citizens of Dublin, not even the poor of Dublin, back the rebels. We were marched across the city to Richmond Barracks. No food or drink, still no permission to go to the Jacks. Brian O'Lynn was bursting and gasping, but he walked head up through the rubbish and abuse, sticks and smoldering masonry that were thrown at us as we crossed Dublin. The kids in shawlies, beggars and workers, came out and lined the streets. They spat and cursed, followed us down through the corn market in James Street. We marched right through it. Rotten meat, loosened cobbles, the contents of their chamber pots. For his part, Henry still nurses romantic feelings, and where he allows them free reign is in his tendency to mayhem. He has a way of living outside whatever systems or institutions want to suck him in, whether it's the Irish militants or their more respectable political face, Sinn Féin. And he also devotes his loyalty to specific individuals, whether it's Michael Collins, who is one of the best written characters in this book, or Miss O'Shea, Henry's first school teacher and later his wife and partner in crime. But relatively little of Henry's story is given over to this romantic or antic side. Much more of the story is taken up by what might possibly be the opposite of the romantic sentiment, and that is obligation. It's not Henry's obligation that we're hearing about. He's obliged to almost no one. Rather, it's the author's. Doyle's tale enters the ring with capital H history, and after giving as good as it gets for a good long while, the heavyweight starts to knock the challenger into submission. Historically important characters and historically important events and historically important facts start to laden the plot, which changes the tenor of A Star Called Henry. Importance, in quotation marks, is the last thing that wafts off the character of Henry Smart. He runs from it, rebels against it, 
He's the character that history forgets, and yet Doyle keeps chasing after him with it. I understand the author may wish to highlight the rebellious aspects of Henry's nature through the use of contrast, official versus unofficial history. But what the novel comes to offer the reader is fairly well known through other stories, histories, and films, so that you wonder, at least I wondered, whether it was necessary for Doyle to retread this ground in his novel. Does Doyle need to write the official history of Irish independence in order to show how Henry exists on and outside its margins? The most compelling reason to say no, I think, is that whenever the novelist thinks he or she is responsible for recording the past, it tends to mitigate that novelist's power. Likewise, whenever Doyle tells a story that gets away from the record and allows his main character more room to breathe, the story comes back to life. The struggle for independence finally wins over the population, and as the leadership turns legit, Henry's former comrades shuffle him to the side. After two further sections of the novel devoted to important, responsible, relatively predictable plot, part four, where Henry finds himself in jail, is once again clever and frightening, Doyle at his best. For some reason I haven't looked into too deeply, I find stories about the individual in confinement, for example here, in Darkness at Noon, in Any Human Heart, and in the movie Castaway, gripping. Maybe it's all the potential that exists in the story of a person who lacks the ability to act on any of his or her thoughts. In any case, Part 4 of A Star Called Henry carries on this tradition at its best, going deep inside Henry Smart and ranging further and more freely than in any other section of this novel. In retrospect, I appreciate the story of Henry Smart more than I enjoyed reading about it. I wished the author had stayed closer to what seemed to be one of the central intentions of the book, to write outside the official history of Irish independence. The question of to trilogy or not to trilogy stays open. I really love and respect Doyle's work, but I guess I want to be certain of the uncertainty in the follow-up novels. Thank you for listening. That does conclude this season of To Trilogy or Not To Trilogy. I hope you enjoyed it. Burning Books is part of the Latopia Network of Podcasts, and you can hear back episodes. Subscribe and reach me there via the email, the show button, all by going to latopia.com, spelled the way it sounds, and following the link to Burning Books Pod. I also enjoy getting your tweets, nasty and nice. I'm at Burning Books Pod. Lastly, if you want to contact me on Facebook, you can reach me there at facebook.com slash Eric Beck Rubin. When we've decided on the next season and have some release dates, we'll post notices on those sites. My thanks to Hakan Ozgan for the music. There are several ways to thank someone. So, let's start with the easiest. Teşekkürler. To Peter Cox, executive producer of the program. Herb. Herb. You, wait, you say herb? Yeah, I say herb. Herb. I thought you said it herb. And as always, go Jays. Big Brill is the greatest, my friend.